Welcome to the Public Morality. February is the month set aside to honor the historical achievements of African-Americans. But we on the Public Morality thought the month was also the proper time to highlight less flattering aspects of the African-American narrative. Blackface is a form of theatrical makeup used predominantly by performers of non-African descent to portray a caricature of Black people. The historical, political, and sociological impact of Blackface was used to demean, degrade, and define Black people for the dominant culture. Joining me to discuss the legacy of Blackface past and present is Professor DeVarian Baldwin. Professor Baldwin is a professor of American Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Professor DeVarian Baldwin, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks so much for having me, I appreciate it. Uh, here we are in the midst of African-American History Month, which I consider a, a convenient adjunct to American history. But I want to be in conversation with you specifically to discuss a rather inconvenient aspect of the American narrative, uh, which is blackface. Let's begin mm. by having you take us through the origins of this thing called blackface, if you would. Sure, okay, thanks. So uh, blackface, first of all, is a form of a theatrical performance, usually on the stage, but it does find its place centrally um, as the uh, country moves to the technology of film and television. Um, it's a performance style where dark makeup, usually in the form of burnt cork, grease paint, or even shoe polish, is used by primarily non-Black performers to caricature or lampoon, in short, to make fun of Black people. Um, it began, it gained uh, significant popularity in the 1830s and the 1840s, but it's a central form of American popular culture all the way up to the late 1960s. So we're talking about from pre-Civil War all the way to the Civil Rights era. Um, it's popularized by uh, a white male by the name of Thomas D. Rice um, and his song, Jumpin' Jim Crow. So it's, it's central to blackface minstrelsy is where you have white people behind the so-called burnt cork where they are performing stereotype qualities of black people as either, or in most cases, as happy plantation darkies, so black people that are happy to be on the plantation, or the dandified coon, a black person that's dressed up or in modern environments where they seem like a fish out of water. The common characteristics of black people or white people in blackface representing black people is that black people are buffoonish, lazy, superstitious, that they lie, steal, they mangle the English language. And then white men also um, dressed up as black women in blackface. And here the characteristics were that black women were unattractive, that they were manly and or mammy-like and oversexed. So this is the primary framework for understanding the roots and the uh, performance style of blackface minstrelsy. You mentioned uh, Thomas Rice, and and um, couple to jump out, um, and I, I want to have you talk about it. First of all, number one, uh, Rice was a Northerner. Jumping Jim mm -hmm. Crow insists was a Northern song, mm -hmm. and um, a, a, according to Rice, as I understand the history, he 
claims he saw some black stableman dancing. And so he sort of legitimizes what he's doing by saying, this is based on what I already saw. I'll, I'll let you take it from there. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 for some people, it might be surprising that uh, blackface ministry actually is not just simply or explicitly a, you know, uh, a product of the peculiar tradition of Southern slavery, that it comes out of the entertainment era and the entertainment industry of kind of Northern commercial culture. Uh, it makes sense that Thomas Rice is going to argue that he witnessed black people performing in this way that gives his performances a level of authenticity that he would claim that other performers would not have. And in fact, uh, white face, uh, white people in blackface ministry were considered to be more authentic than actual black people in popular culture. And so there's a way in which his ownership, his commercialization, his commodification of, of, of this character of so-called black authentic performance uh, foreshadows what's become a legacy of white people profiting off of so-called authentic black styles of culture in their caricatured form. Um, you know, whether it be certain aspects of hip hop or fashion or television show performances, we see over and over again um, this kind of racial contract whereby predominantly white consumers with purchasing power um, would prefer to see uh, white charactered visions of black people as more authentic than actual black people talking about their experiences. And, and, and it should be noted, um, not only um, does this begin in, in, in a northern province, but, uh, but I think at some point, I mean, Rice also had international popularity. Uh, um, is that correct? Well, not just uh, uh, Rice himself individually, but the appeal of blackface minstrelsy went global, um, especially in white nations, what we call white settler nations, um, where you have colonies of white people in predominantly non-white realms like South Africa and Australia and other countries like that. It was a global phenomenon where you had uh, coon shows or plant shows, short for plantation uh, experiences. So whole plantations were reenacted on stages um, or, in, or in life or in real time where you had white people in blackface performances uh, or in blackface styles uh, performing blackness as a way to deal with, um, you know, what does it mean to be white in uh, what, and in many cases were black worlds or surrounded by non-white people, or in um, the U.S., especially after the Civil War, after Civil War and the Reconstruction era, you know, what does it mean to be white after we had for so long associated black people with bondage? So now that black people are out of bondage, especially if I'm poor white, what does whiteness mean? In some cases, I might only be, the only difference between me and a, and a black person is that I'm white that economically we might be parallel. So race takes on this additional uh, uh, val value, this valence, this importance, because it comes a way to maintain distance between white and black people um, when there might not have been much political or economic distance, um, you know, except for a reinforced through Jim Crow inequality. But there was no inherent difference because of the end of slavery. Go ahead. You just, you, I'm sorry, you just reminded me of a scene, I believe the movie is Mississippi Burning, where mm -hmm. 
the white person, you know, talks about um, the, 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 black, the, the, the black house that they burned, that that right. black person, he didn't say black person, had a piano. And then he followed right. by saying, and I ain't got no piano. Mm-hmm. So what do you point exactly. that he wanted to play the piano? He just didn't have one. Right. That's right. So there's desire, jealousy, anger, that at one point in time, bondage had become a physical way to distinguish black people and white people. Even if you were poor white, at least you weren't a slave. But with the end of slavery and with black people, some black people being able to accumulate some wealth or at least walk upright and not live in chains, um, whiteness took on a different meaning. And so the point here is that blackface um, and scholars, scholars have pointed this out. Blackface, uh, blackface did a lot of work for the psyche of American whites and American whiteness, especially in a changing world. Now, black people were still, especially because of Jim Crow, were still relegated to an inferior position. But that belief that they were inherently inferior had to be maintained in policy, in law, in violence, and in popular culture. For elite whites who, who had to act in socially restrained and proper ways, performing blackness became a release to exhibit all the behaviors that were not becoming. So being boisterous, drunken, carnivalesque, promiscuous, improper, hypersexual, by do, performing these behaviors in blackface, it allowed elite whites to release themselves in ways that were not tied to their character. They were in blackface. Um, for working class whites, Blackface became a way to maintain distinction between themselves and especially free blacks or thinking about how close to slavery their lives actually were. At least there was a racial difference. So the point here is that racism is not, nor has it ever been just about hate, but it's also about this fascination, even a pleasure in mimicking and mocking or even sexually exploring racial inferiors. We all know that Thomas Jefferson had children that were slaves. Racism, racism is not about hate. Sometimes it's about, it's about fascination, desire, and even pleasure. And so black, blackface minstrelsy um, captured all of that. You, you, you know, um, and, and I'm going to come back to your point about the work of blackface um, in a minute, but, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, you, you, you mentioned that Rice, in a sense, was a precursor to what, we, what then became minstrel troops. Um, and it, you know, it, does it, I, did it also send a message um, that, uh, to, to white America that they need not fear, these are my words, these childlike people, thereby justifying mm. this unequal treatment because these childlike creatures, my words, were not mm -hmm. equipped for full citizenship. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't think that it said do not fear. I think what it said is that we are in a moment of crisis and we need to, we need to fear or we need to figure out a way how to make sense out of black people not living in their appropriate place. So in images of the happy darky or especially the kind of um, the dandified coon in the urban environment in a lot of these plays, what they were is saying, look at when, what happens when black people are living outside of what we consider to be their natural habitat. Black people living upright, black people acting dignified, black people trying to speak, um, you know, what was considered to be proper English, et cetera, and in the shows failing. 
black people's fail attempts to live outside of what we perceive to be their natural place of subservience became the subject of the joke. So at every turn, when black people tried to live in ways that seemed to challenge the racial hierarchy in blackface minstrelsy, that became the comedic ruse. So white people were taught to laugh at moments when black people um, uh, uh, traversed or disrupted our ideas about who they should be. So I think blackface minstrelsy, it was attempting to stabilize what was a very anxious time for white America. What's, you know, what's going on with black people off the plantation? What's going on a little bit later with black people migrating to, to the urban north? Um, it's, it's not a mistake that, you know, in the 1920s, we see a, a, a powerful rise of not just professional blackface minstrel shows, but amateur blackface minstrelsy. Everyday white folk um, engaging in amateur uh, minstrel shows at, the, at moments where black people are coming to cities during the Great Migration and living uh, a gr at a greater level of proximity to white Americans in cities. Uh, uh, challenging, challenging them for the, on, the, on the work on, at, the, at, the, at the job, on the shop floor. So, so again, this is, I think this is, for me, this is what blackface meant. Well, is, is, that, is that related to what I, what I saw, what I heard you say in a, in a, in a subsequent interview several years ago, that blackface mi um, minstrel um, was actually America's first reality television? Yes, it was the most popular and influential, and influential genre of American popular music and performance in the 19th century. This was not a marginal uh, uh, style that only happened at Klan rallies. This was, like I, as you said, the I said before, the reality television of the 19th century. You, uh, it was a centerpiece of the marketing of marketing industry. We call what, what one scholar called commodity racism. Um, blackface minstrel images were used to sell soap, pancakes, greeting cards. It was a centerpiece of cartoons. Both Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny were blackface minstrels. Um, on radio, we have the oral blackface. So the idea of speaking black in a black stereotype way through Amos and Andy, one, the most popular uh, program on radio. It was the foundation for the earliest films or what was called moving pictures. Thomas Edison um, had blackface minstrel performances in some of his early films, like the watermelon eating contest. Um, Birth of a Nation, which is still considered um, the most iconic piece of, of, of filmmaking in the early cinematic era of 1915. Um, all of the black figures, except for maybe one or two in that film, were whites in blackface. Um, it goes all the way up to, you know, uh, uh, cartoons like Cold Black and, get this, and Duh, D-E-7, S-E-B-B-E-N, Dwarf. So, again, kind of like a... a, a a, a lyrical and, and uh, uh, li linguistic blackface or caricature. Um, mm -hmm. Most importantly as well is that blackface was a performance rite of passage for some of the most iconic white performers that we've known to this day. Al Jolson, Fred Astaire, The Three Stooges, Mickey Rourke, Shirley Temple, Judy Garland, all of the central early film artists and, and, and actors all in their early careers performed in blackface. Again, it was a rite of passage to Hollywood stardom to have a character or a role where you performed in blackface. It was central to not just the American popular culture, 
It was central to the American psyche as explored through popular culture. You, you, you mentioned Fred Astaire, I asked a specific question about him because in the 1936 movie Swing Time, you know, mm -hmm. Astaire had, had said that uh, tap dancing in, uh, broadly and specifically Bill Bojangles Robinson were, were, were his major influences. And, and, mm -hmm. and I have no reason to doubt Astaire's sincerity, but when he does a tribute to Robinson in Swing Time, Astaire adorns blackface. He wears right. these really flashy clothes. And if you watch the films of Bill Robinson, he was never in flashy, outlandish clothing. He was always well-tailored. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this was 1936. So we're talking about a time when the authenticity of so-called tributes to Black performers was accompanied, <laughs> in my view, about... But by, by the need to lessen their agency, your thoughts. Right. Yeah. So there's no question about that, that there is within the entertainment world, there's a clear recognition that the driving force, and we can see this even to the present, that the driving force of American popular culture from a content perspective and from an economic perspective is black culture. That there's this idea in the American psyche, the white American psyche, that in some ways we have been over-civilized, that we have been constrained in what it means to be uh, 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 modern or composed. And therefore, you know, our, our release valve, our, the realm where we can explore our so-called true, our, our, our base selves is in black popular culture and in literally becoming black. And so even though Bill Bojangles Robinson lived a very um, elite and composed and, and debonair life, Fred Astaire's image of blackness because of the history of American popular culture was, could only be constrained by this idea of black people being sloven, um, a love for bright colors, um, speaking in a certain dialect, that for him, this was his pathway to channel um, what, he, what he actually considered to be the superior dance styles of black people. That to get inside the mind and the physicality and the artistry of um, tap, which is, which is clearly a black performance style, he had to um, embody what he considered to be these, what we would consider to be these caricatured representations of black life. That was, that was his pathway. So there is this, um, what, what, what uh, uh, a literary scholar Eric Left calls, Eric Lott calls a process of both love and theft. That in order to gain insight into the so-called black psyche, to, to, to channel what they were considered to be this superior artistic form, um, there has to be some pathway, some performance of what they consider to be the inferiority of black people. Now, and so, it's important to understand that this, this, this terrain was so powerful that an early American performance, that even when black people were performing in a style that was superior to white people, the only pathway that they could get on stage, that they could get to Broadway, was even black people being in blackface. So iconic black figures like Burt Williams, George Walker, Ada Overton Walker, these were people that transformed Broadway. It was their artistry that was superior to anything seen by white performers. But even still for them, their pathway to the Broadway stage was only originally through blackface. Mm -hmm. um, 
I just want to note, you've already touched on it, so I'm going to note, but, but many of the examples that you are giving, the locales are not in the Deep South. Broadway's not right. in the Deep South. Yeah. I, I, Hollywood's right. not the Deep That's South. Right. I, I just want to reiterate that, that we're not talking mm -hmm. about what we stereotypically hold as the locale, you know, for these portrayals. Um, That's right. Uh, I mean, T. Thomas, T, uh, uh, Thomas Dixon, who wrote the book, The Klansman, on which uh, D.W. Griffith's film, Birth of a Nation, was based, was a New Yorker. He, he was a preacher in the so-called um, Tenderloin District, which is to the west of Broadway, which was a, a predominantly black and Irish neighborhood. And so in many ways, his film about Birth of a Nation, I said, look what happens when black people get free. All they want to do is have sex with white women and steal chickens and uh, uh, live a life of laziness. His, his, his narrative about Reconstruction was crafted based on his anxieties about living around Black and Irish folk in New York City, not in the Deep South, just to confirm what you were saying. Yeah. Well, you know, you know and, I, and I, I will admit to being a fan of Turner Classic Movies, and so, you know, if you're looking at classic film, you're gonna occasionally gonna see some, some Blackface images. And mm -hmm. I find when I watch these images on the screen, um, I feel that I'm 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 almost compelled to laugh in order to keep from crying. Now I'm, mm. I'm disgusted in one sense, but on the other hand, I can't turn away. I mean, it, I mean it, it's really difficult to to conceive just how ingrained this practice was in the culture and how normalized it was, as you say, up until the mid-60s. Yeah, I, it, it, was the, it was the pathway to performance, period, to, to the stage, to television, to theater, period. Not just for a small segment, but this was the rite of passage, as I said before, to gain access to American theater and performance. But I want to highlight one point you made about being Black and laughing and crying, because one thing we don't talk enough about is that black people, there was blacks like, like Burt Williams and George Walker and Ada Arverton Walker who were performing for white audiences in blackface as one of the sole pathways to gain access to the mainstream stage or the mainstream television. But at the same time, there was a powerful um, uh, uh, subculture within black communities at circuses and tent shows where black people performed in blackface for black audiences, where blackface took on a different meaning that when you had black people performing blackface in front of black audiences, what you had was this different understanding where black people were not laughing at black people. They were laughing at, look at the way in which black, white people, look at the, the way in which white people think about us is really not about us. It's about them. So in watching these shows, in watching black people performing blackface, we're not laughing at, at black people. We're laughing at the ways of white folks. Look at how they think about us. This says so much more about them than it does about us. And so I really want to highlight this meaning of black people in black space for black audiences as having an alternative system of meaning that we've rarely explored in these conversations. You, you know, one, one of the things that occurs to me, and this is, this is, these are my, clearly my thoughts. When you see these portrayals of exaggeration, and you mentioned Fred, we talked about Fred Astaire earlier, in his um, mm -hmm. tribute, I'm using tribute in quotations to sure. uh, Bill Robinson. I wonder, did blackface in some peculiar way 
while demeaning in one sense, uh, as you say, were for white people, did, did that include that it may have been also cathartic for those who wore blackface in that behind this black skin that they put on, they became mm -hmm. freer in their movements, more in touch with their feelings in these exaggerated portrayals. So, it's all, so, so the portrayal of blackface in some ways becomes cathartic for white people. I wonder how you saw that. Yeah, I think it's cathartic, but in a different way, it becomes, it's, it's, it becomes this release valve. If whiteness is purity, if whiteness is temperance, if whiteness is civility, we know that as human beings, we are many things. So with the constraints of performing daily as white people, by putting on blackface, all the things that white America had to suppress that were not aligned with what it meant to be white, get to be explored in blackface and left on the stage because it's not their, it's not their desires. It's not their performance. It's them acting black. And so that's where it's cathartic. That's where it's this release. And, and I think people need to understand that. But at the same time in performing blackface, it still upholds this racial hierarchy where all those deviant qualities get uh, located as black and all of the uh, benighted or desired characteristics and qualities get highlighted as white. But in blackface, white Americans get to traverse that divide. They get to be something else, but they still get to be white in the daily life. Right. So, 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 and this means so, either performing it or going to the show. Would it be fair to say then that um, this exaggerated uh, uh, performance that Blackface in some regards becomes the first window so that the dominant culture can satisfy its curiosity about black life. Mm -hmm. Well, come on. I mean, I'm, I just turned 50 years old, so I'm relatively young, you know, so to speak, in terms of the history of blackface. Um, in my time, as a young person in the 1980s, I remember going or, or watching on television exposés on fraternity parties where they had slave auctions white people in blackface minstrelsy doing auctions, bidding on each other in blackface. Then when I was a graduate student in the 1990s, I heard stories about pimps and hoes fraternity parties where white people will come in blackface dressed up in pimps and hoes costumes, gold chains, uh, uh, you know, animal print clothing, but also they would wear uh, sexual prosthetics on their body parts. So all of these stereotypes and fascinations about black sexuality, about black, you know, about, about, about sexuality, about release, they got to explore these things behind the paint of blackface. And then in the 2000, in 2010s, you saw another uh, round of blackface minstrelsy again at fraternity sorority parties um, through the form of Halloween costumes. And these were called tributes. So these, but not blackface is in our lifetime. Um, these modes where young white people that come from relatively elite worlds, you know, they, because they're part of these white fraternities, use blackface as a place to explore aspects of their lives that were considered to be deviant or, or marginal um, through blackface uh, uh, party going. So, so I mean, I, I, you know, that, that, that's, that's a curious topic. So, so in one sense, I mean, it's easy, let's say you and I, um, two African-American men have this conversation. We can see this 
behavior as 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 fallacy, but um, and I would say an uh, boarding on an unhealthy obsession. These are my words, but mm-hmm. but those who portray in this, don't you have to embrace it on some level as fact? Oh, for sure. So to go when 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 the when the party advertisements or the or the text call outs for the parties that I've seen on social media come out and they tell, they say, you know, Pimpson Hoes party, bring your best, you know, uh, uh, black, uh, your, your black experience, you know, um, what, what, what would they say that, you know, uh, come in your bl- best black attire. They're not saying best blackface attire. They're saying come in your best dress as a black person. And so then this becomes, and it's important to know, these are in spaces of, a, of training for the elite white society of the future. So when you come to these events and you are exploring or you are performing what you think about black people, and then you are going to go on to be a lawyer or a judge or a police officer or a politician or a, a head of I'm corporate America. Virginia. Right. That is going to shape how you perceive black people in terms of setting policy, writing laws, interacting with black people, making hiring policies, um, putting out uh, programs for economic recovery. All these things will be shaped, especially if you think black people are inherently slaving, uh, lazy, fun time, oversexed. This is going to shape how you shape the, how you um, set policy and create infrastructure for the world. And we saw this in, in, the, in the recent years where governors of Virginia, um, and then the person who replaced them, and then um, uh, uh, potential members of Supreme Court, all these political powerful figures who had been members of these very elite and very white um, uh, fraternities, and, fraternities and sororities had all engaged at some time in blackface minstrelsy. The point here is that there was this moment where, they, where people wanted to have this kind of, you know, aha moment. Let's look in the, let's look in the, um, the, the yearbooks and, and, and discover who performed in blackface. But what we're going to find is that there will be more people who were, who've had blackface in their history than who didn't in these realms of elite white training. It, it, it remains a rite of passage, whether it become publicly exposed or remain in the underground. It continues to be a, a rite of passage. There was a few years ago, there was, you know, um, there, there was a, a bus full of students. I think it was in Texas who were, you know, um, singing, you know, so-called minstrel songs. There's a conversation around um, the, the fight song at the University of Texas that is rooted in a black minstrel song. And we all know this. And yet the leaders of the university are saying, this is a part of our tradition. We will not let go of this black-based minstrel song. Um, we have um, a few years ago, the H&M ad that had a picture of a young black child with the quote, coolest monkey in the jungle. Um, Prada, a couple of years ago, had minstrel figurines. Gucci had a, a, a kind of a blackface slash monkey balaclava sweater. Um, this is in our contemporary popular culture where white leaders and uh, tastemakers are actually resisting revision. We're not changing. Um, and so this is, this is the world which we, which we currently live in. If you, if you take sort of... Um, I'll take your comments earlier about the work that blackface did. Um, yeah. 
and and you move that to the present moment. Right. Even though it may not be expressed the same way. It seems to me throughout the American narrative that blackface becomes emblematic of a social buffer. Um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically right now uh, of the case of low-income whites that could be pacified by the belief of the inferiority of blacks, allowing right. them to accept, say, economic and social conditions that they mm -hmm. otherwise would not accept. And I think that that's right. And, and that holds true in the present moment. I'll let you have the floor. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, for example, we we know that for white America, especially poor whites, um, the Affordable Care Act is extremely valuable and helpful to them. But when, when it gets called Obamacare, they don't want any part of it. When you call it that, they, then there have been surveys done. There's been a whole book called, uh, written called Dying of Whiteness, whereby that approximation, that association with life-saving healthcare policy is rejected because of the association of Obama slash blackness with the qualities and characteristics of subservience, of dependency, of laziness. They will reject health policies that would actually be helpful. So the point here is that when you produce, you know, so if, if blackface is entertainment and it dehumanizes black people with these stock stereotypes, it makes it easier to assume aggression and traffic stops, to build inferior housing, to take away voting rights, to give lower wages, to create substandard education and health care. And it also helps justify in certain ways um, poor whites not even voting or uh, uh, accessing or demanding access to policies that are in their own best interest. A perfect example of this is the criminalization of drug, of drug use when it was crack cocaine, but now calling it a health crisis when it's opioids and primarily whites that are using it. There is a lack, blackface minstrelsy amongst other, amongst other aspects of popular culture and policy becomes a mechanism as you said, a kind of a buffer or a callous elixir that doesn't allow us to associate or, or allow us to see, to um, express empathy when it comes to black people. We can't see them as being human beings. So when you have black people engaging in uh, you know, drug use during the crack era, it's crazy black people run amok doing what black people do. But when you have similar or even higher rates of white people I'm engaging in substance abuse during the opioid crisis. It's a health crisis because we see in those white people that are addicted to drugs, we see ourselves as white America. We see humanity. We see people being overwhelmed by a health crisis. But blackface minstrelsy and contemporary iterations of it help. They're the only force, but they help us not see black people as human beings, but as the accumulation of all the stereotypes that we have imposed on uh, kind of stereotype, caricatured articulations or expressions of popular American popular culture. We can't see now, humanity. I, I recognize that, that, that iterations of blackface go back to the 1600s. Mm -hmm. uh, but America has, um, and I think the evidence is clear, a, a, a color-coded culture. So mm -hmm. much of our cultures delineated around fault lines of race. Mm -hmm. Is is that how one, in your view, could offer a defense that that you talked about, say, uh, the pimps and hoes fraternity party? 
and they can yeah. say, well, I don't see anything racial about that. Is that how you can justify that, that, that part of that color-coded culture? <laughs> I mean, it's 2022. Um, and, but yet, yes, you do. You, 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 today, you, you have in multiple iterations. Whenever there's, there's a, it's almost a performance within itself. There's the persistence of black space minstrelsy. It gets, there's a moment of exposure. And then there's a counter performance of innocence. I didn't know. I didn't know the long history. I didn't know what it meant. I thought it was a tribute. These various justifications. But in 2022, with the pervasiveness of social media, of textbooks, of, of YouTube, of Hulu, of Netflix, there's no way you cannot, that you can gain ignorance or claim ignorance about the relationship between black faith ministry or versions of that and its uh, history and present day uh, efforts to reinforce caricatured ideals about black people. There's no way, I have no sympathy for that excuse of innocence. It is another performance of whiteness. I didn't know. Um, and so this, but this is what we have over and over again, these ideas of not knowing. And just to be clear, there are counter arguments that say, well, there are black people that perform white face minstrelsy. What about the movie White Chicks? Isn't that a version? Well, the point here is that symbols and signs of performance, black face, white face, on their own may be seen to some degree as just simply neutral performances. But the power of blackface is the fact that blackface is a justification. It's a popular cultural expression of a systematic mistreatment, a reinforcement of social institutions that reinforce white supremacy. There is no white face minstrelsy that justifies the systematic mistreatment of white people as a race. There mm. is no parallel, as much no, as some people might want to try. You mentioned white chicks, and I was also thinking about um, the Saturday Night Live skill with Eddie Murphy. Uh, when, right. When, 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 when he was uh, white like me, that's what it's called. And there's a cover of Esquire, I think, where uh, uh, Chris Rock is in a white face as well. Right. Right, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. um, but but even Chris Rock and some of his stand up talks about how, you know, if, if there's a mass, I mean, no one, the mass murderer who may be white, there's not an outcry that that's em emblematic of everyone. Whereas of all black, white people, of all white people. Right, right. All white mm -hmm. people. So mm -hmm. whereas blackface is an attempt to say this is emblematic of the whole. That's right. So if you have a, a, a white person that engages in, in a deviant behavior, like murder or, or sexual assault or, or whatever, um, it is, it be, it's in a white supremacist system, that's an individual white person. That's emblematic of his or her character. But when a black person engages in a similar practice, that, is a, that confirms that's how they are as a race. And blackface minstrelsy becomes a popular cultural uh, bridge to reinforce that idea. There is no white parallel. Isn't that in part, uh, in your views, uh, behind some of the uh, voting laws in 19, the 34 voting laws that 19 states have enacted because there, there are some deviant people 
who are cheating at the polls. That's and right. That so even when we don't say, even when we don't use the N word, or even when we're not explicit about, uh, uh, you know, uh, burning crosses or even Confederate, even though Confederate flags are coming back, but Confederate flags or the Klan, there are other racially coded ways in which the, the, the characteristics associated with blackface minstrelsy and other forms of, of stereotypical performance come out today. So the idea of, you know, Haiti and other African and Caribbean nations being, uh, you know, S-H-I-T whole countries or um, the voting, vote, uh, you know, voting and, and Trump losing in urban areas. It's not because black people or brown people voted against them. It's because black and brown people are double voting. They're cheating. There's corruption in these urban locales. We need to take over the experiences. Um, it's not that we're telling the truth about history. Um, it's CRT and white people are made to feel guilty about the truth. White people are the victims when we talk about the history of race and racism. It's not truth telling. So in all these ways we see in various iterations, how stereotyped caricatured ideas about black people and presumptions of white innocence and purity and neutrality are still getting played out in the political terrain right now today. Back in 1981, right after Ronald Reagan defeated uh, Jimmy Carter for the presidency, actor Ben Vereen, who's African-American, um, at, at Reagan's inaugural gala, wore blackface. Um, mm. He was paying homage to a man you mentioned earlier, Vaudevillian Burt Williams, a black man who had to wear blackface. The tribute right. began with Vereen dressing a top hat and tails, which all black theatrical performers were required to wear, unless you know, uh, to, 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 for the most part. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he was singing a show tune, which was really popular in the 19th century, waiting for Robert E. Lee. When, yeah. when Vereen finished, there was this rapturous applause among the largely Republican and, dare I say, largely white audience. Mm -hmm. Still portraying Williams, Vereen then mimics an imaginary conversation with a bartender where he offers to buy everyone in, in attendance a drink then he reminds the crowd that he would not have he would have been denied that drink because of the color of his skin and mm. and then he sings i ain't got nothing from nobody uh as he removes the blackface mm. well well this is back in the days of uh before before smartphones so abc <laughs> tape delay the broadcast. They cut mm -hmm. that portion of Ben Vereen's performance out. So it looks like he just appears in blackface paying homage to Reagan. And, mm -hmm. and this really hurt his career because it, it looks it looks without that other part, it looks buffoonery. And it sort of yeah. reminded people because earlier Ben Vereen had played Chicken George, a minstrel, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. In, in, in the term roots. So I'm sort of going, I'm, I'm where I'm going with all of this is you talked about black folk portraying blackface to other black folks, see what white folks do. Well, here's Ben Vereen doing that in a largely yeah. white audience. And not only is he cut, is it cut, he's vilified for it. 
And I just wanted to get your thoughts, if you have any, on just mm -hmm. ABC's decision to pull that second portion. I know I gave you a lot there, but you, you have at it. No, so, I mean, whether it be ABC or the, the, the Reagan administration, let's just be real honest here, People love to like romanticize Reagan right now. I don't know how uh, if you live through it, if you were black and lived through it. But my point here, I won't get too far off. My point here is that this, what you've narrated, demonstrates in the 1980s, so not ancient history, the kind of work that blackface minstrelsy has done for the American psyche. That in its so-called, in its authentic iteration, behind the blackface, behind the cork, for white America, that is not Ben Vereen performing blackface. That is black people. So the power of Ben Vereen on that stage to then offer a second act where he takes off the blackface. And as he's taking it off, he's expressing the infrastructures of denial faced by black people behind the character, behind the political and economic constrictions of being black in America. That reality has to be refused. It has to be denied. It has to be cut off. Because there in that performance, in that second act, you have a rupture of the racial contract. That the blackface was never about black people. It was always about white people and white supremacy and white hierarchy and black inferiority. And Ben Vereen attempts to rupture that contract, and it must be denied by ABC. And to bring Reagan into it, it gets reinforced by his policymaking. He goes to the Bronx, where black and brown people in the South Bronx are saying, we need food, we need help, we need housing. And he goes berserk into a panic and runs and almost runs away. And his solution, so well, I mean, it's not a direct response to this, but it's sort of his solution to this call. His response to this call is to caricature um, a, a one black woman on welfare as the welfare queen as a way to justify taking away social benefits from a welfare um, because of how black people are using it as a way to, uh, you know, buy diamonds and furs and Cadillacs. Now, of course, the reality is that there are far more white people on welfare, even to this day, that use public benefits than black people. But he uses this caricature, this sort of blackface caricature of black people inherently using uh, welfare as a hustle, as a way to change policy on a policy that helped more white people than black people. This is the work that blackface ministry has done historically and continues to do, even without the actual burnt cork. The characteristics, the caricatures that align black people with laziness, with hustle, with lying, with hypersexuality, those linkages still persist even without the burnt cork. And, and it and does a lot record, of work. And for the record, there was a woman in the early 70s, uh, an African-American woman, I believe, in Chicago, who was mm -hmm. convicted of welfare fraud for, a, for about $1,000. Yes. So, um, so, you know, in relative terms, the degree to which he represented her as making millions off of welfare, having multiple babies to get multiple checks, Yes, this black, this black woman did hustle the system, but to a much smaller scale than what was made out to be. And then the ultimate response was to dismantle the system that actually benefited more white women and white families than it did black. Professor By calling it. 
a black process. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, you, you got it. <laughs> I was just going to thank you, sir, for, 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 for a stimulating conversation. I just want to thank you for joining me today on the, on the, on the public morality. Much, much appreciated. We, we've got to have you back for some more insights, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I look forward to having this conversation and other ones in the future. Thank you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.